You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 17th, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. Have any of you guys experienced virtual reality goggles yet? Have you done the Oculus Rift thing? I have. No, I did old tech years ago, but I used the the recent one. I had I, a friend of mine uh, bought the um, SDK. You know, like the, when they send you the thing to develop software with it. Mm-hmm. This isn't the brand new one that's coming out very soon. This is the one that's been around for a couple of years, and it was remarkable. You didn't find uh, it heavy, bulky, sort of pulling on your head, kind of uncomfortable. No. To wear? No? No, it was really actually pretty damn good, and they made massive improvements on the latest one. But I'll tell you, like, the coolest thing that I experienced while using it was, you know, you put the headset on, and it's reading the position of your head, right? So when you, of course, you turn mm-hmm. your head, the, the, what you're looking at changes and, as if you're in a real 3D environment. Yeah. But this particular simulation was you sitting in the cockpit of a space, you know, fighter, like kind of, you know, kind of like an X-wing fighter setup. And what's really cool is like you look down and you see your body sitting in the chair and it was in an orientation that was so like the way I was sitting. And I had uh, a few moments where I, my brain, yeah, my brain crisscrossed. Like I, I, I'm like, oh my, you know, like the, the character moved its hand. You could see it grabbing the controls and stuff. It was really huh. cool. Um, and Chatter also, Rogue too. you look up and you could see out the, uh, you know, out this like huge, glass windows that was on top of you so you could see what's flying around you and you looked down and your the chair is perched up high up like into like this cockpit but you could see like 10 or 15 feet below it was just really awesome so i wrote about this recently because of uh the problem with virtual reality technology so far is the simulation sickness like motion sickness but in reverse you know if your visual system is telling your brain that you're moving but your body doesn't feel the movement. The disconnect can give you motion sickness, like sensation, nausea, etc. So actually, the cockpit is probably one of the best applications because you have this static cockpit that really helps orient you and really minimizes ground you. Yeah, yeah, the, the uh, simulation sickness. The ones where it's difficult is when there's nothing like that. It's just 100% moving environment, mm. you know. I'm, I'm, I haven't tried it yet. I'm anxious to see how I'll do because I have a little bit of a problem with motion sickness. Yes, you do. I mean, I, I, you've, you always have. I remember still that. Cleaning yeah. up, still cleaning that, up those shoes, Bob, right? I remember that cruise when we, we were little kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, like when I play video games, immersive video games, I can only get so close to the monitor. Really? If the monitor fills up too much of my visual field i get oh, motion you start sec. to yeah start to lose that so it's not too bad i, mean, I could handle a pretty large screen as long as it's a couple of feet away from me i just can't do too much um but i i have had like i had those three monitors arranged in sort of a little bit of a wraparound that was too much i almost couldn't play video games with those monitors wow what part of the brain what part of the brain is causing that that sickness so that, it's that a dis- it's mainly the cerebellum but it's a, it's a disconnect between you have your visual system your vestibular system your proprioception wow. uh and your cerebellum sort of brings all of that information together and synchronizes it and makes sure it all agrees with, with itself. And if there's a major disconnect, we just didn't evolve. We didn't evolve in a situation where that would be true. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you, know, you have to be on the deck of a ship or in a car or with virtual reality goggles before you could create a significant disconnect between those streams. And it just brain doesn't know how to handle it. And it just 
creates motion sickness. What about IMAX, Steve? Couldn't that do it? That feels that feels yeah. a big field of view. It can. I, I've gotten a little woozy on, on IMAX if I sit too close. Mm. Wimp. But then there are people, like I wrote about it, there are people in the comments who seem to have it a lot worse than I do. Oh, wow. You, you can't adapt. You know, you can't actually train yourself and your brain gets used to it and you don't experience it as much. So, like, the first time is bound to be the worst. But we'll see. I mean, it might take me some time to adapt to the visual uh, reality goggles. But the companies are making progress. So, Jay, the head tracking is a huge advantage. Yeah, but they're also working on eye tracking. I know there are some companies who already have that. Yeah, eye, and a nose, that. right? They're, they're adding a nose. And then, yeah, the artificial nose to ground you, just like the oh, cockpit cool. does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This will all minimize it. it. Probably won't ever completely get rid of it for people who are sensitive. But all of these little tricks to help your brain process the information better may help. And then uh, eventually, imagine if they could, we, you could give the, the proper physical feedback too, not just, oh not my just God. visual feedback. Touch, yeah. Tactile or yeah. Hap- well, they're working on that. Some Haptic. couple of companies are coming out with some type of glove. Yeah. And, uh, that's going to take a while, but you know, it's good that they're working on the technology. I mean, the really important thing to take away from this is that the virtual reality and, you know, augmented reality experiences are coming. The companies They're are coming. investing, you know, millions if not, you know, tens of millions of dollars easily into this technology. And then it's just going to turn into another peripheral that we're going to have. Yeah. No, I mean, we're, we're, we're definitely there. We're in like the earlier adopter phase or the phase one. Maybe we're actually in the, like sort of a little bit past that. And I think, you know, it'll mature very quickly now. I think we're right in that very fast stage. So I think like within five years – uh, it'll be we'll take it for granted as another peripheral device on our computer. It, you know, we'll, it's going to go way I, beyond I, that. This is going to yeah. be. We've talked about this before. This is going to be, I think, bigger than than smartphones. This, this, this you know, wow. that, when, it's mature, know. when it's that's mature, when it's mature, it's hard to predict the all the applications and how people are going to use it. But I mean, I think mon, I think monitors will go away. Uh, you you will be wearing these. Imagine if they were like just sunglasses. You put your sunglasses on, bam, there's your monitor. It could be fully immersive. It could be partially immersive. Bob, it's that what you just said is very far away. You know, right now these th- these devices need to be large. You know, they're not yeah. crazy heavy at all. They're fine, but you know, they have big screens inside them, and you know, they they they're even making those bigger now. Like a so- lot of things, it'll be for gaming. And I think it's going to be for gaming for a while. That's the best. Non, non-gaming applications, yeah. it's hard to say. Those things. Cause it, yeah. and I disagree with you, Bob. I think you, oh, you, you particularly tend to overestimate how much penetration new technology is going to have. But it, it, I think definitely it'll have that niche application. I think it's a no-brainer that it'll be oh used for God. gaming. But, you know, replacing a monitor, you know, who, maybe eventually, but, um, just because, we can use VR instead of a monitor. It doesn't mean it's going to be better for every application. Like, right? I mean, do you really need VR to do word processing? You know, maybe there'll be people won't want to do it for basic applications. They'll have their monitor for basic stuff and then they'll put on the VR when they want to be 3D and immersive, but they won't want 3D immersivity for like every little application that they use. Well, it doesn't have to be. It could basically look just like a monitor. I mean, but you don't need the hardware. Sure, I think there'll be some 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 uh, niche applications for mon- old school monitors, but for word processing, so what? Just have the, the monitor, you know, on your projected onto your retina 
or onto your the uh, onto your glasses. You know, look at look at smartphones and look at look at everything that phones do. Look what phones can do today. Who could have guessed what what phones do? They do everything. Yeah, it just took ten years longer than I think everyone thought. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I, th- I think maybe the reality will be between us, but maybe closer to me. I think. Well, I'm not. All I'm saying is you can't predict. You know, we don't know if it's going to go the way of the Segway. You know, where it has a really small niche application. It didn't transform oh, the way we get around cities. That's ridiculous. We're talking, we're not talking gaming technology. <laughs> we're, we're talking, this is, we're talking augmented reality. Augmented reality. Yeah. That has so many applications. Okay, just, Barb, let me give you a better, Bob, let me give you a Bob, better example. Just say it. Just say it. It's porn. Say it, Bob. <laughs> All right. I, I will <laughs> give right you porn. It. I will give you porn. But the, uh, think about, Video phones. Why isn't everybody using a video phone? Who could have possibly predicted that even when the technology was available, we wouldn't be using it? That's All I'm saying right. is you, we can't predict until people actually try to use it for everyday things like word processing and email. We won't know. I said that. I basically said that. I said we won't know all the applications and how people are going to use it. I give you that. Absolutely. Okay. But there's right. so many that even if 10% of them are used, it will be deep. When we say gaming – Gaming is a euphemism <laughs> for porn. Okay. <laughs> Bob, tell us about this week's Forgotten Superhero of Science. Yes. This week's edition of Forgotten Superheroes of Science, I'm covering Jerry Lawson, 1940 to 2011. He was a- The King Jerry Lawson? The wrestler? The famous wrestler? No, the was musician there? Jerry Lawson. No. The, the oh, that's self- Jerry Lawler. Oh, I'm sorry. No, there was a, there was a musician Jerry Lawson, or is. I think he's still alive. Okay, but this- this is not him. This guy, this Jerry, was a Jerry. This guy was a self-taught engineer, and he was involved in the development of the 70s video game consoles that used cartridges for the first time ever. Oh, no. Ever, no. He, ever hear of him? <laughs> now, Lawson <laughs> Lawson wore a lot of hats at the height of his career. He was the chief software engineer and the director of engineering and marketing for Fairchild Semiconductor's division of video games in the 70s. And interestingly, uh, that marketing job that he had was held previously by Mike Marcula, who later co-founded Apple Computers. Um, so that mm. was interesting. So under his supervision, he and uh, his team developed the very first video game console system that used interchangeable cartridges to play different games. It, th- th- they just didn't exist before that. And I do want to mention that the, in- the initial cartridge idea itself and the prototype came from Wallace, Wallace Kirshner and Lawrence Haskell. Uh, uh, they did a lot of the initial stuff and their, their ideas though needed to be modified and adjusted. And Jerry did many things like design the electronics and things. He, he had some solid input, but those two guys also deserve some serious kudos for, for, for what they did. Now, now we take this for granted today, whether it's cartridges when we, when we were growing up or today with a uh, game discs, the game CDs, mm-hmm. but before Lawson, the games were part of the console. They were embedded in the console, which was very limiting because this was very, very expensive. So you'd have to do different games. You'd have to buy another console that was made specifically for that. So this was a great business model. Right. First of all, you have that one initial cash outlay and then bam, you buy a lot of the cheaper cartridges and then now CDs that, you know, we're all familiar with this. Um, also, there were more firsts. The, the system had enough basic AI as well to allow uh, humans to play against computers, uh, which was the first in the industry, you know, playing against the computer. That had never been done as well. And also it had, for the first time, a pause button. So you could actually stop the gameplay, do what you needed to do. You could change some settings and then start again. Nobody, nobody had it before that. So they released in 1976. It's called, it was called the Fairchild Channel F. 
the first gaming console with such a capability. And of course, you probably never heard of that console ever. I never had. Nope. Fairchild Channel F. What a lame name, first of all. And, uh, I mean, it really, uh, <laughs> did not get a hell of a lot of, of market penetration, but, uh, you can't take away uh, from the fact that this system was the first to have this technology, which was, of course, used by the giants later on, Atari, Nintendo, PlayStation, Xbox. Actually, Atari was developing a system uh, with a similar cartridge system, uh, but when they saw this, they're like, oh boy, we've really got to push this along and make it good because uh, mm-hmm. uh, everyone's going to be flooding the market with cartridges, which they did. So now, don't forget, we're talking about an industry, the gaming industry is twice as big as the movie industry. Two times, I mean, it's just, it just dwarfs, um, movies and mo- we know how big movies are. Consoles alone, just, just gaming consoles pull in about $55 billion, United States dollars a year. PC games are less than half of that. Actually, mobile gaming is, uh, is poised to, uh, to really explode. So that will probably overtake the consoles. But as of now, consoles are king. So, and even after Atari took over, which they, which they did v- very quickly after they released it, uh, Lawson still founded and ran Videosoft, which was a gaming development company that wrote the software for the Atari 2600 in the 80s. So even after, Ooh. even after that console went bust, he was still writing the software for Atari, which was king at that time. So clearly these guys were, were pioneers early in this industry. In fact, Lawson was one of the very few black engineers in the industry at that time, which is, it makes it even more remarkable. So remember Jerry Lawson and Kirshner and Haskell as well. Mention them to your friends, perhaps when discussing program storage units, Fairchild F8 CPUs, and Sprite Pixels. Gosh, here's the ironic thing is that now when you buy, you can buy Atari consoles and these old games and stuff, but it, there is no cartridge now. Now it's all built into the controller itself. You just press a button <laughs> right. to choose your game. So it's kind of come full circle in that regard. All right, let's move on to some news items. I'm going to continue my informal series on talking about the science of science itself when scientists analyze or write about or discuss how to go about doing better science. This time in the crosshairs is nutrition research. There was a, an article written in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings by Edward Archer and his colleagues in which he challenges the legitimacy of much of nutrition research. Uh, specifically, they're criticizing reliance on memory-based dietary assessment methods. Essentially, asking people what they ate yesterday, you know. The the authors noted that uh, it was pretty damning. You know, they were pretty critical. They essentially said that any research based upon this is unscientific and is not reliable. So, for example, he said that it's clearly established that people have terrible memories when it comes to recalling in any kind of detail what they ate. There's also significant biases. You know, people might underestimate amounts of food that they ate, for example. Uh, it's easy to influence people in terms of re- their recall of what they ate. Means you can suggest something and whether well, they just ate the, it or the, not, yeah. they'll think, of, they'll think they, they, they might think they actually did eat it. Exactly. Or the way the questions are asked could easily bias how they recall mm-hmm. uh, the information. Therefore, they say that, uh, you know, we need to just rethink this as a research method. It's just not a rigorous enough research methodology. And all nutrition guidelines and recommendations based upon this type of research are suspect. Pretty damning for an entire field of research. P- uh, researchers on nutritionists have responded saying, but well, hey, hold on. This type of research has gotten us pretty far and we have figured out some 
some important things like the association between a fatty diet and cardiovascular disease, uh, for example. So my, my, you know, thought reading about this and reading all the responses is I think that their criticism is valid. This is a significant limitation in this type of research, but a limitation is not necessarily fatal. I think another way to look at it is that it probably limits the research to picking up big signals in the data. You know what I mean? So in other words, if there's any big effect, uh, any big nutritional dietary effect, this kind of research probably will still be able to pick it out. But as you get more and more subtle, more and more detailed, then the inaccuracies in this type of research start to obscure any signal. The noise becomes greater than the signal. And I think we've already probably already picked a lot of the low-hanging fruit. You know, as research progresses in any discipline, we answer the big obvious questions, then we have to get more subtle and more subtle as we delve as we delve deeper and deeper and deeper into the research. And as you do so, you also need more and more rigorous research methods. Uh, because you're look and you're looking for subtler and subtler effects often. So I think um, for dietary research, um, we may be at that point where if we really want to continue to push forward, maybe we do need to think about more rigorous ways to capture information about what people are eating. So the trick is dietary research. You know, an ideal study is just really hard to do. You can highly control what people eat for a short period of time. It's hard to highly control what people eat for a long period of time. And so researchers rely on observational studies for longer-term studies. If you want to track people for a year, right, you can't be – it'd be really hard to be giving them a completely controlled diet for over the course of a year as they go about their lives. So you you rely upon things like a diary where they just write down everything they eat. But that introduces systematic biases and errors, et cetera. So that's, that's the dilemma is how do we capture long-term information about what people are doing in the real world with high fidelity. And maybe the current compromises we're making are not optimal. Technology may come to the rescue. You know, it may be possible for – it is getting easier for people to record what they eat with like smartphones. They have them with them all the time. And so you can have an app that helps them record more accurately what they're what they're eating. So that's helping. Yeah. Uh, there may be some more passive methods of just observing and recording what they eat that doesn't re- rely upon memory. Bob, that reminded me of, you know, people who will – you've talked about this, will like record their whole life. Yes. You know, so imagine if we have a cohort of people who are doing that and you could actually review, you know, do a life review and see what they've eaten. Yeah, just have your AI software just go through all the all that data and, and find the pertinent moments. Yeah. yeah, so technology will probably solve these problems for us. But in the meantime, we have to figure out maybe how to make the best compromise and maybe add, add a little bit more rigor to these types of studies. On the other hand, I also want to do want to say that what I think is interesting, I think for like the basic science, figuring out, you know, the details of the interaction between nutrition and health. Obviously, we want the most rigorous studies possible. But when you're talking about giving people advice about just what they should eat in their everyday life, I think the broad brushstrokes are fine. I think if you try to give people too much detail, it becomes overwhelming Mm. very, very quickly. You know, Mm. like how deep are you going to drill down on what you should and should not be eating? And I've talked about this before. There was a study that looked at 
uh, many common ingredients in a cookbook. I think they took the first 100 ingredients they came across in a cookbook and then did a literature search on each ingredient. And uh, 72% of the ingredients had studies showing that it either decreases or increases the risk of cancer. <laughs> so imagine trying to tweak your diet to that degree where you're like, it, it should become crazy. I think you get beyond diminishing like returns. Yeah, it becomes a full-time job. It basically. becomes counterproductive. You could give people all kinds of really highly detailed nutrition information, but it's just unlikely that the average person is going to be able to avail themselves of it in that kind of detail without obsessing over it. And then you may be getting more and more work for smaller and smaller returns. Whereas you're, you're probably better off giving people basic advice that's easy to adhere to that covers 95% of the benefits that, you know, of having a healthful diet. You know what I'm saying? I'll take that 95% for, you know. Yeah. Not having to, not having to, you know, fret my all every sweating minute of my life over it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, the, and the, you know, I, can't, I forget the name of the guy who said this first, but the basic advice is uh, eat a variety of food, not too much, mostly plants. That's it. If you do that, you're like 95% of the way there. And then everything else is a detail that's probably going to have diminishing returns. All right, Jay. Yeah. I always have an eye out for applications for graphene. There's this new super material that's going to change our civilization. So tell us about the latest. Graphene is pretty damn awesome. And I think we're lucky to have uh, discovered it, right? I mean, does, is it naturally occurring, Steve? Do you know? Well, it's basically graphite. Uh, the original researchers figured out that just by like using sticky tape on graphite, you could pull off a very thin layer. If you do that a few times, you could actually get to a single molecule layer thick of carbon atoms, which is what graphene is. And that opened up this whole new world of two-dimensional substances. And, yep. and graphene is just the first of that. This is, but this is like, we're on the brink of a massive change in material science based upon these 2D materials. So a few weeks ago, if you guys remember, I discussed the uh, the photonic or optical computers, right? So a new development now brings us one important step closer to achieving this. And it's really cool that this news item came out just weeks after I covered the optical computers. So a postdoctoral research scientist named Young Duck Kim led a team of researchers from Columbia, Seoul National University and Korea Research Institute of Standards and Science, which is cool that they call that the the school Chris. I like that. The team announced that for the first time, visible on-chip light has been produced using graphene. Graphene, it's an allotrope of carbon, meaning that its carbon atoms are organized in a particular and unique way, right? So this is so cool. Graphite is where carbon atoms are bonded. um, They're in sheets, like a a hexagonal latticework but chicken stacked, wire. Yeah. Like chicken stacked, wire, like yeah. stacked. Oh. Well, graphene is the single sheet of chicken wire. Yeah. Graphite is multiple sheets on top of each other. Graphene, Bob, it's an amazing material. It's 200 times stronger than steel by weight. It conducts heat and electricity with great efficiency, and it's nearly transparent. So the researchers used graphene as a filament. They attached strips of it to metal electrodes. And they pass current through it, literally like a light bulb. It is a light bulb. This causes the filaments to heat up and they produce like this bright and visible light. Can you imagine that? Like they heat this thing up, the electricity passes through it, it heats it up, it vibrates the molecules, and the vibration causes friction and that friction causes heat light. Graphene has all these other properties also that make this the perfect material for this application, right? So they have – it's mostly transparent, like I said. It allows light to pass through it. So 
depending on how, how far away the graphene strips are from the substrate or the, the basic structure around the graphene. You know, if you picture mm-hmm. a filament, it's hanging in midair and there's nothing underneath it. But with graphene, they would put a reflective surface underneath it so it bounces the light back. And they found that depending on how far away that substrate is from the actual graphene, it changes the frequency of light so they can control what color light comes out, which means we're going to have monitors. <laughs> That's uh. awesome. Yes. <laughs> and really small. Super, super small, like pixels, if you will, right? That's awesome. Jay, I wonder how efficient it is. You mentioned the heat and the light. I wonder what the ratio of heat to light is. So if you look at a regular incandescent bulb, that's a, it's a shit ton of heat coming out of that thing. You could, you could use it to, you know, to warm up if you put your hands close enough to could that. Could literally use it as an, in an easy bake oven and <laughs> yes. cook pies with it. That's true. Right. right. And then you got the LEDs that don't. So I wonder where that stands. I don't have the exact numbers on it, but they said that, um, Graphene gets really hot and becomes less able to conduct, conduct heat as it gets hotter, right? So just imagine, if you will, that the hotter it gets, the less it's liable to transfer the heat. So this confines the hot spot to an incredibly small point at the center of the filament. So if you think of the filament as, you know, just for, for illustrative purposes, a two inch strip like of tape, right? It looks like just like a, a piece of clear tape. There's going to be a little pencil point in the middle of that where all the heat is going and all the light is coming from in the, in the center. So that energy is really not going to escape, Bob, in the way that you would you would think it would. It just gets better as it gets hotter, if you can imagine. But it would would this – so they're talking about like light on a chip applications. Yeah. But would this just – could this be developed into an, a light source, like a light bulb? I don't see why not. I guess if you did it enough and you grouped it in a, in a particular way that you could, and I'd be interested to see the amount of energy versus the light that you get out of it. Is it even worth it? But yeah. I mean, Steve, it would be cost effective. Yeah. yeah, you know, when we say a light source, I mean, their researchers are talking about this technology being used for monitors and for for the monitors yeah. to take on any shape we want. However, if Whoa. What Bob co- says comes true. We won't need these monitors. Virtual reality. Well, then we'll use them in the virtual reality mo- goggles. It's just remarkable that we can even make this and manipulate it and do. Uh, how do you pick up a sheet of atoms? How do they even transfer it? You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, all that technology right. that they had to figure out even before they can get to the ex- these incredible experiments. But it's taking too damn long. I've been reading about graphene for years. I want, <laughs> when can I go to the store and buy some of this stuff? It's being used a lot, Bob. There isn't the so-called killer app for graphene yet, but it's being used a lot in manufacturing. Bob, are you aware of transition metal dicalcogenides? I've heard of transition metals, but not that not that other thing you said. What's that about? Dicalcogenides. So this is also two. It's a type of two-dimensional material that is a combination of a transition metal like molybdenum or tungsten, and uh, calcogen, which are the elements that are beneath oxygen in the periodic table. Uh huh. And it also these are also a series of two-dimensional materials, and apparently there's potentially hundreds of them, you know, with different combinations of atoms, and all with different properties. Oh my God! Wow. Yeah. So it's like you name it. What set of properties do you want? You could eventually find the permutation of this that has it. You want semiconductor, you know, insulator, conductor. You want, you know, how strong do you want it? Whatever. So some people think this has been overlooked because of graphene is so sexy, but that this really has a tremendous amount of potential for the future as well. I got to look that one up. That sounds cool. It seems likely that this is really going to have a significant impact on industry in the future. 
in the very near future. All right, Evan, uh, I was at the Center for Inquiry conferences last weekend. How was it? It was very good. It was excellent. Good. Yep. Saw a lot of our friends up the, there, I'm the, sure. The talks were all great. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, saw a lot of our friends. And while, while the conference was going on, they announced the, uh, CFI Global Warming Challenge. There. Yeah. Here we go. New challenge at hand. Let's see what happens. Tell us about so, it. Like the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which is a program of the Center for Inquiry, is throwing down the gauntlet to the Heartland Institute. The Heartland Institute is a group that claims that global warming actually stopped in 1998. Uh, here's uh, what The Economist had to say about the Heartland Institute, the world's most prominent think tank promoting skepticism about man-made climate change. Uh-huh. And uh, from their website themselves at the Heartland Institute, the level of warming in the most recent 15-year period since 1998 is not significantly different from zero. Natural variability is responsible for late 20th century warming and the cessation of warming since 1998. So there you go. Bold statement. Here's the challenge from the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. If the 30-year average global land surface temperature goes up in 2015, we'll take a measurement right at the end of 2015, and if it goes up, then the Heartland Institute must donate $25,000 to a science education nonprofit. Huh. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting challenge. Yeah. And if it doesn't, CSI uh, will donate to a, a nonprofit designated by the Heartland Institute. So it works both ways. Uh, from all I've read and all the comments is uh, there's no way – it's basically a, a win – bet for 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 csi yeah uh, the global land surface temperature is going to go up in 2015 there's you know how it has to i mean if you're going to take the uh, it's based on the 30-year average and the numbers have been increasing so even if there was zero rise this year if it was flat it would still go up in the measurement at the end of the year because the average a 30-year average would be higher yeah correct which totally goes 100 percent against what the heartland institute is trying to tell people right Will the Heartland Institute accept this challenge is is the question of the moment. Yeah. I looked up to see if they had had any response uh, as of today. Uh, none that I could find, but it's uh, it's still kind of fresh. So we'll see if later this week, maybe if they come out with something, we can do an update next week. Yeah, I predict but, they will completely ignore it, which strategically is what they should do because this is a lose-lose. Right. For them. Yeah, for them. Because they're, they're, they're denying the science. And so a, a fair challenge like this, which basically says, what the science is that the average temperatures are are continuing to rise. It shows what they're doing for what it is. So they, yeah. there's a no win scenario for them. Their their best bet is just to ignore it. Uh, and that uh, coincides also this week with uh, news out of Vatican City. Always always a dangerous beginning to a sentence. News flash. So the Pope basically is going to be getting his own sort of challenge going. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to try to convince the uh, one billion plus people in the world that look up to him as their spiritual leader in Catholicism that global warming is a fact and a threat to all humanity. He's got this official proclamation coming out. It's called an encyclical. That's your that's your new word of the day, everyone. Look it up. An encyclical is a papal letter sent to all bishops of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's uh, considered the highest level of a teaching document that the Pope can issue. So it's a pretty important 
document. Uh, the document is going to state, and it comes out. It comes out tomorrow. So unfortunately, we don't have the document right now to review, but uh, it's already been kind of leaked, so they know exactly what's what it's going to say. It's going to state that global warming is directly linked to human activities. And, and because of the intensive use of fossil fuels. Pope Francis is basically teaching his faithful that there is evidence around us that global warming is happening and can no longer be ignored. He brings up Arctic ice melting, uh, deforestation of the Amazon rainforests, uh, and, and these sorts of things. So he's going to have examples for people. But what he's also going to do is actually, you know, place blame, uh, as, as popes have been wont to do over time. Uh, he's placing blame at the doorstep of, and I quote, the enormous consumption by rich countries at the expense of people in poorer countries. But the pontiff is using, is going to try to rally all humans, not just Roman Catholics, but everybody to try to prevent the destruction of the ecosystem. So he's a hundred percent, uh, backing the, uh, the science and the evidence, and he's going to try to convince over a billion people of it. So, yeah, it's interesting. You know, obviously I, I'm not a big fan of the church sticking their fingers into anything, but yeah. uh, you know, if you're going to use your influence on the faithful, you know, you, I can't argue with using it to support a scientific consensus on an important issue of the day. I think that's a good precedent. But you guys heard, we actually missed this last week. This should have been our dumbest thing of the week for last week. GOP candidate Rick Santorum on a radio show said that the Pope Uh should quote unquote leave science to the scientists. Oh boy. He said, he said without the slightest hint of irony. He was challenged on that, saying, so the Pope can't talk about science, even though he actually has a degree in chemistry, which you don't. And But it's okay for politicians to talk about science. And then Santorum responded that, well, we have to make decisions on public policy. It's like, yeah, that's right. That's why it's even more important for you to listen to the consensus of scientific opinion, because you're making actual decisions. You're not just telling people what they should do. You're actually, you know, making decisions about what the what the country is doing. So the irony was so thick, you know, to have a climate denying politician say that the Pope should leave the science to the scientists. Yes, the scientists have already given their opinion on this question. The the consensus of scientific opinion overwhelming overwhelmingly is that humans are causing the globe to warm. And so it's legitimate for anyone to then base their actions on that scientific consensus. That that is leaving it to the scientists. Questioning the science is not leaving it to the scientists. Unbelievable. Oh, oh yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad he's in the running for president. I'm glad he's not going to win. <laughs> um, <laughs> as you were saying, Steve, I, I, I too had a few uh, uncomfortable sort of feelings about when the Pope kind of says stuff and, and, and does things, a couple things. He says that there needs to be the establishment of a new political authority to tackle pollution. Uh, mm. uh, hmm, I don't know about that's that. That's pretty bold. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's bold. I'm not really all that comfortable with popes having a, any sort of hand in the design of like a governing body. I yeah. think they have too yeah. much influence over It's a little medieval. Things. Uh, yeah, you know, popes have had armies before in the past <laughs> and, you know, not, it hasn't turned out <laughs> not well. Not to good effect. And... And, and look, I mean, I've, I've come down hard on this pope and other popes before him. And as far as I'm concerned, this, 
look, this guy's in the business of, of, of the exorcism industry. I'm sorry. I'd have no other way of putting it. And I know I get kind of harsh and this is a pet peeve of mine specifically. I can't stand reading every single day in the news about exorcisms happening all over the place. I mean, let's say Mexico just had a national, uh, or, or countrywide exorcism that, you know, that, well, did on. you see I, that? They said the whole country is low, is filled with demons. Right. It's flowing with, de- I, I mean, come on. We're, it's, it's, it's so out of control. I mean, so, I mean, so when, when this Pope says other things that actually, you know, are, are, are good or, or in, in the, that, that make scientific sense and so forth, we, we still have to remember, you know, that th- this person is part of an organization which promotes, frankly, cruelties and abuses, uh, yeah. abuses on a global scale. This person's not an angel. Well, everyone, we're going to take another quick break from our show to talk about a new sponsor we have this week, Casper Mattresses. Jay, you actually got a mattress and tried it out. Yes, we are very demanding on our advertisers, and we um, we had them send us one, and I've been sleeping on it for a week. And I really, really like the mattress. It's very good. I, I like a firmer mattress, and uh, foam mattresses tend to be a little bit firmer, but there's a, different things about it that I like. I like the fact that on this type of mattress, you don't feel the other person on the mattress like you would in, in a traditional mattress. Put a lot of energy into engineering this mattress. They have a mixture of latex foam and memory foam, which are actually two different kinds, and they they come together to make an extraordinarily comfortable mattress. Yeah, they're also offering a uh, risk-free trial and return policy, so you can try out the mattress for up to 100 days uh, and then return it. No questions asked if you're not happy with the mattress, which is always nice. And there's a special offer for SGU listeners. Go to casper.com slash SGU and enter the offer code SGU. And you'll save $50 on your purchase. There's an important point here. Like, just do price comparison. It's $500 for a twin size and $950 for a king size mattress. And if you've been mattress shopping, the prices for mattresses at other companies are much, much higher than this. They have awesome pricing. These mattresses are made in the United States, which means that there's free national UPS delivery in one to five days if you live in the USA or Canada. And if you happen to be in New York City, you can get courier delivery within a 90-minute window of your choosing. So go to casper.com slash SGU and enter the promo code SGU to get a good deal on a good mattress. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, Bob, some good science news. The sleeper has awakened. <laughs> you like that title I had. Huh? I do like it. Yeah. Dune, gotta love Dune. Yeah, this was very exciting. I was just, just, I had forgotten about it. And then I was like, oh boy, how awesome is that? Uh, so space uh, professionals and aficionados the world over are psyched as hell that Philae, the first vehicle ever to make a soft landing on a comet, has finally announced that it's alive and well inside its very annoying shadow on Comet, on <laughs> Comet 67P. Uh, I'm sure you all remember back in November 2014, yeah. they made that huge announcement after, after decades of effort and 10 years traveling through space, the uh, European Space Agency's Rosetta probe uh, ejected its lander module, Philae, which landed on Comet 67P. It was an absolute first. Um, and it looked like it would never even happen for so many years because there were just so many issues and problems and glitches. Uh, that just happened over and over. So if you remember, we got to cover what happened after uh, Philae seemed to land. The sensors indicated, yes, it has landed, but other sensors were saying that, no, it's rotating in free space or, or it's rotating, so it must be in free space. So what they found out later was that the two harpoons that were on board had not fired. Major, major uh, glitch. 
Uh, so basically it bounced. There was nothing to hold it down. Uh, it bounced up a kilometer, came down, probably bounced again, and finally settled down. Wow. And, uh, and if you were on the comet, it would have actually been quite interesting because it's not like a bounce on the earth. You know, there's no, there's very little gravity on this, on this thing, even though, even though it's huge. So you, you don't need retro rockets. You don't need parachutes. Uh, you're just basically in free fall. And, uh, in free fall, instead of going, you know, 120 miles an hour like on earth, it was only going one mile an hour with nothing to hold it down like the harpoon, even that little impact sent it careening back into space about a kilometer. It was finally on the comet, it, it, but it slid around probably a little bit, and then they started looking at the, the pictures, and the pictures were not good. Uh, basically, Philae was in a dark ditch uh, near a very high wall that that totally blocked the sun. Or not totally, but blocked significantly the sun's access to the solar panels. Not good. So the battery was just not going to be charged after a while. So they knew they had 60 hours. That was a hard and fast amount of time that um, they had before the, the power levels would hit zero. So they scrambled around. They, pre, they reprioritized the tasks to get the things done that they could get done and needed to be done uh, within 60 hours. And they did accomplish a lot of them, uh, but then they had to put it in hibernation. And uh, there was still lots of data on the hard drive that was never sent. So we're like, oh, crap, what are we going to do now? Uh, there was a little bit of hope that as the comet got closer to the sun, it would be more and more powerful and that it might charge the batteries. They just had to wait. And listen, I, then I remember uh, in the middle of March, uh, the European Space Agency was starting to listen because they thought it might be perking up a- around this time. And uh, and, it, and it, it didn't. Days and days passed. I figured that's it. We're, we're done here. So, uh, so now this is months after that. That was mid-March. Finally, finally, last Saturday happened. And this is the 13th of June. Rosetta sent an 85-second message from Philae, of course, everybody's just freaking out. Um, now, the, the data that it sent was probably a few weeks old, but still, a few weeks isn't that much. Philae sent housekeeping, telemetry, and the bottom line was that the subsystems were working fine, and even in that bitterly cold environment, there was no real degradation, so it was in decent shape. And I didn't know this until I did this research. It sent a three-second burst a day after that with just a little huh. bit more information saying that... Um, that uh, it was a more up-to-date status and that it was warming up. It was already at f- minus 5 Celsius, so it was warming up nicely. So that was great. And uh, so this is just such, obviously, amazing news. Uh, I like this quote from BBC science editor David Shookman. He said, this is one of the most aston- astonishing moments in space exploration, and the grins on the faces of the scientists and engineers are totally justified. Uh, so now I think we're going to finally, hopefully, see uh, most all of its mission come to fruition. It'll be able to drill finally, which was like the holy grail of what they wanted to do. Really, not after landing, they wanted to drill. They wanted to examine this uh, the primordial solar system stuff. And there's lots of other experiments that they, that they're going to do. We may learn if life on the Earth was seeded from com- from space from comets. Uh, if comets are made of H two O and uh, and it's also got lots of uh, carbon-bearing molecules, which are just as critical to life as we know it. So those are the, it could be very illuminating. One thing, though, the water on Philae could not have seeded the Earth because the chemical signature was just different, different type of water. But the other really interesting thing that came out of this, and I'll close with this, was that the hibernation of Philae itself was a big, big bonus because it was in that shade for all that time. It looks like it will probably be able to last a lot longer than anticipated, and it'll be able to record the formation of the comet's tail from the surface of the 
comet itself. So uh, that's an amazing Whoa. that's an amazing bonus that we're going to get from this. So uh, I cool. think it was definitely worth the wait. Can you imagine if it finds actual life in the water of the comet? Microbes? Probably not oh capable gosh, of doing right. that, is it? I mean, it's probably not equipped with, the, with what it would need to need to have in order to make that determination. But it's not impossible. It'd be a huge boost to the panspermia hypothesis. Mm-hmm. You know, if there was frozen little microbes in in, in the comet. That would be great, and I, I gotta so hope that's that's true. But just finding, you know, just determining with a high confidence level that the carbon on that comet could have seeded Earth, that would be, you know, that in and of itself would be fascinating as hell. Hey, and don't forget, we wouldn't have had Shirtgate without this launch. Oh God, so, without this whole mission. So, yeah, <laughs> got to remember that. At least none of the scientists said that. You know, they they don't like to work with girls because they cry when you. <laughs> oh my God! Oh my gosh! <laughs> Oh, we have come so far, yet we have so much to learn. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, God. Well, Jay, it's time for Who's That Noisy? Absolutely. So last week, I played this noisy for you. I know you guys recognize the song. Yeah. And I'm oh, sure. guessing, of course, it's making you think of something very specific. 2001. That's right. There is a very interesting backstory here, but let me get to the business end of the stick first. So this uh, the, this week's winner is Mule Richardson David, or maybe that's David Mule Richardson. I can't tell mm-hmm. by his email, but thank you for uh, winning this week's Who's That Noisy? You guessed it correctly. So what we're talking about here, guys... Is this is in 1961? The IBM 7094 was the first computer to sing, and they chose Daisy Bell. The vocals were programmed by John Kelly and Carol Lockbaum, and the accompaniment, which is the music, was programmed by Max Matthews. Now, there is a little bit of a question or a controversy or a not so sure what the truth is situation going on, where they think that this was a obvious and direct inspiration for the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey with Hal the computer. And there's lots of things that people are, are drawing lines between the two. So first of all, Kubrick denied all this, but, but what people are saying is that the letters IBM, if you go to the next letter in the alphabet, it spells H-A-L. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hal sings that same song, <laughs> you know, which is a pretty damn remarkable coincidence if it is a coincidence. Well, there was also the, this, I read that um, Arthur C. Clarke may have incorporated that into the Hmm. into this story, maybe what didn't come from Kubrick. And Clark did visit Bell Labs and was aware of this fact, that that song was the first song sung by a computer. So could be a massive yeah. coincidence, but that does seem... It seems likely. very unlikely. Yeah. Uh, that that was really cool. I, I, I found yeah. that backstory to make make for a very interesting um, you know, idea, like where the song came from and, and then it ends up in one of the best movies of all time, and one of the most interesting moments in that movie, in my opinion. Yeah, powerful. So, very powerful moment. And I have next week's Who's That Noise? Well, it's this week's To Be Revealed next week. What is this? What adorable animal is that? I don't know, but I want it one. 
<laughs> you want you want one? <laughs> it it's, it sounds like the noises the gremlins made before they turned all evil when you got them wet. You know, Evan, I can't believe you said that because I had a similar like that's a that's a soon to be bad animal noise. You know what I mean? That's like or or like yeah. the noise of the, the um in Jurassic Park. When, yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah. When Newman, the dinosaur the, eats you. What yeah. a cute little dinosaur. Newman, yeah. Ah! <laughs> he calls him a dog. He tries, tries to play fetch with him. <laughs> that actor cracks me up. So if you think you <laughs> wing, know the answer night. to this week's Who's That Noisy, email me at WTN at org. Send me your ideas. Send me good recipes for chocolate chip cookies. And have a great week. All right, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Future Advisor. I'm always worrying about what am I going to do when I retire? Am I going to have enough money? Thank goodness we have a company like Future Advisor. I'm just going to buy a lot of ticket. <laughs> that's, that's one way to go. Or you could wisely invest your money through a service that will give you advice on how to diversify your portfolio. You can use Future Advisor yourself or for a really low fee, you can have the experts at Future Advisor help you maximize your investments. And you don't need to be a website whiz to do it. The website is very simple, very clean, very easy to use. You can load up all your accounts and you can get it done faster than you, you could imagine. So go to futureadvisor.com forward slash SGU and get the free portfolio analysis, which Bob, you need that. You got to go do this. I know. I mean, seriously, guys. Prepare for your retirement because you know what? It comes very fast and it takes a long time to build up the money that you're going to need. So you got to start as soon as you can. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right. We have a dumbest thing of the week this week, although this can also double Mm -hmm. for a name, not logical fallacy. Take your pick. But here we go. Tell me who said this. Quote, some people think that all complementary therapies should be available on the NHS. Some people think none should. And some believe, as I do, that we need to determine what works for what conditions and provide those treatments for patients. We cannot get bogged down with demands for randomized controlled trials, (laughs) trial evidence, as some do. Bogged down? (laughs) So in sentence number one, he says, we need to determine what works. And in sentence number two, he says, we can't get bogged down with actual evidence. Mm, so an oxymoronic statement like that could only have come from the mind of <sighs> the Health Select Committee chair in the UK well, Parliament. It's, it's David Tredinick, <laughs> yeah. who is today the parliament voted on whether or not oh. either he or Sarah Williston will become the chair of the Health Select Committee. So this is a member of parliament in the UK. We have spoken about him before and he, he ran last year actually for the chair and was soundly defeated. He only got nine votes, was knocked out in the first round. But this year it's only him and Sarah Wollaston who was, who was the chair over the past year. She's an actual physician mm-hmm. and seems to have a, a science-based attitude towards, uh, nonsense in medicine. Uh, she warned for example, about using homeopathy instead of actual vaccinations, and that that can cause harm. So she seems to get it. Uh, but Tradinic, not so much. So, uh, yeah, he, he's the guy, if you recall, who uh, thought that we should incorporate astrology into the NHS and that it would really help out you know, the overextended NHS by incorporating this ancient wisdom of astrology. <laughs> 
Although he didn't say which form of astrology. So in another article right. he wrote in 2009, he said, I am talking about a long-standing discipline, an art and a science that has been with us since ancient Egyptian, Roman, Babylonian, and Assyrian times. It is part of the Chinese, Muslim, and Hindu cultures. Criticism is deeply offensive to those cultures, and I have a Muslim college in my constituency. So there. Whoa. I added this so there. So, so there. Wow. <laughs> um, so should we use Chinese, Muslim, or Hindu astrology, I wonder, because they're mutually incompatible and completely different? Uh, yes. I the guess answer is yes. We, we have to offend two out of three, I guess. We, but uh, Or we could just offend all of them. I actually think it's offensive to those cultures to say that they to, – to tag them with some ancient pre-scientific superstition. It's like saying, oh, we can't offend yeah. Western culture by criticizing bloodletting. Well, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These guys. He's got, he's, I wrote about this on science based medicine. You can get to a really, I did a deep dive on everything he wrote because it's just a never ending font of complimentary and alternative medicine propaganda. He's got all the propaganda down, right? So I just, deconstructing what he said is just a way of deconstructing the standard propaganda. So in Jeez. addition to, I, you know, I'm taking this balance to you where we want evidence based alternative medicine, but not that real rigorous, you know, double blind placebo controlled trial evidence. We don't want that. We don't want to get bogged down and all that stuff. So what he's saying is you want to use crappy evidence, right? We want to use, you know, anecdotal evidence and quote unquote real world evidence, which means anecdotal evidence, the kind of stuff that's not capable of, dis of determining whether or not something actually works. So that's, that's sort of the, the alternative medicine party line. We want to be able to cherry pick crappy evidence as a, as we see fit, and we don't want to be tied down with rigorous controlled evidence because it doesn't give us the answers we want. Stunning. Well, hopefully that stupid uh, comment will make a difference in the in the vote. Well, it's funny reading uh, the comments. A lot of people think he doesn't have a chance. You know, they got trounced last year. He's probably going to get trounced this year. Actually, the uh, the vote was today, but it won't be announced until tomorrow as we record this. By the time the show is out. The answer will be announced. So I will, uh, I will put that information on my science-based medicine blog post on David Tradenick. So you could go there to see what the result of the vote was. I'm predicting he's going to lose. I'll be oh, unpleasantly surprised if he wins. It'll be a disaster if he wins. This is the, probably the worst person in the world to put as the chair of the health select committee. Wow, that's a huge statement. <laughs> and it will, and it's well, as much about what it says as how horrible he would be in terms of his qualifications. You know what I mean? It's almost like a referendum on do we want medicine to be science based? And if he wins, that's a huge rejection of of science and endorsement of nonsense in the in the healthcare system in the UK by the members of Parliament. You know, this is not a popular vote; it's a vote among MPs. That would it would be a horrible. Commentary on on politics in the UK, and I think just you know the politics of alternative medicine in general be very disheartening if this guy wins. He goes to the patients are usually more open minded than many doctors. I mean, he plays the open minded card, but and I I hasten to point out that it's actually the true believers who are closed minded. Science is open minded because we listen to the evidence and we'll change our mind if the evidence changes. Tradinic clearly doesn't listen to the evidence. He believes in homeopathy no matter how many times it's proven not to work. He still believes in astrology. I mean, you have to be absolutely closed-minded to maintain beliefs in these pre-scientific ideas that have been disproven by centuries of science. That's closed-mindedness. 
Yeah. Being gullible isn't being open-minded. It's being gullible. That's what he is. Hey, here's a quick update I'm recording uh, after we did the primary show. So Williston did win for Health Select Committee chair. She trounced Tradinic 532 to 64, a solid victory. So at least we had a good outcome. Uh, all right, we got one email this week. I think you guys are well, we didn't get Well, we didn't get many. Well, one that we're going to talk oh. about. <laughs> We get tons of emails. I do read them all. I hasten to say. I do read all the emails. We can't obviously answer all of them. Uh, Especially the five-page one ones. Those are, those are some of our favorites. Yeah. <laughs> there is something to be said for brevity. Yeah. All right. Well, this email comes from Steve. Didn't give his location. Steve writes, I read this article in Eon Magazine. The title is, Do We Really Want to Fuse Our Minds Together? It is saying that if two or more consciousnesses were joined with a high data rate link, they would disappear and a new conscious would arise. He also mentions anesthetizing half a person's brain, revealing a new personality. I can't find any mention of the anesthetic experiment on the web and wonder if it is true, and also would a repeat of both experiments reveal the same personality when repeated. Love to know what you think. Thanks for the show. All right. Thank you, Steve. It's a very interesting question. Very fascinating. So well, let me let me deal with the 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 second part of that question first, then we can we can talk about confusing minds together. It's talking about the corpus callosum. You know, the corpus callosum is a, there's other connections, but that's the most prominent connection between the two hemispheres. So the, each hemisphere of the brain is a conscious brain unto itself, but and they are fused into one seamless brain. But there are people who have had their brains disconnected, the split brain surgeries for epilepsy or whatever. And there's there's a series of experiments called the split brain experiments where you could sort of interact with one hemisphere or the other at a time and show that they're not communicating to each other. It's very interesting. And there are procedures where we put one half of the brain to sleep at a time. It's called a WADA test. It's not an acronym. It's a guy's name. And WADA. And hmm. you, you give uh, a drug, you know, into the artery that feeds one hemisphere and you put that hemisphere to sleep. And then we test their memory and their language to see how much memory and language is in each hemisphere. And this is a preparation for surgery because we want to know if we like have to do epilepsy surgery on somebody, are they going to be able to talk afterwards? And so anyway, so that, that's, uh, so that test has been done. They don't, they obviously they're, they're different when half their brain is put to sleep. It's hard to say that they have a different personality. It's just that they're, brain's not fully functional because half of it's asleep. They may stop talking, you know, they may not be able to do math, whatever. Uh, but they are different, but yeah, you know, just a different personality, that's, that's might be overselling it. But now let's go in the other direction. What would happen if two people's brains were connected as robustly as the corpus callosum connects the two hemispheres of one person's brain? What would happen? Would they fuse into one consciousness? Would they be one person? That's really interesting to think about. What do you guys think? I would think I would think I, no. I, I, I mean, if you fuse them together, which is a strange term, and you know, I guess you're just saying incorporate. Yeah, them you make what? you make a, a brain-to-brain connection. So let's say Jay, your brain and my brain were connected, like your neurons were connected to my neurons, the same way that the two hemispheres of the brain are connected together. Now, the thing is, your two hemispheres developed together. You know what I mean? They're, they have. Right. functional connections between the two. There are networks that span the two hemispheres. Whereas if you take two 
completely independent brains and just hook them together. It's not the same thing. Yeah. Because, yeah, there, you know, there aren't any networks that span your brain to my brain, but could they develop over the time? Brains are plastic. If you and I tried to yeah, do things together, meld, right? yeah, it would, yeah, over time would be form connections that, that were functional. And I don't know. It's really interesting. What, what would it take? How much would it even be possible? And over how much time would it take for plasticity to meld the two brains together to where they could function, you know, synchronously? And can it, could it get to the point where there would be essentially one emergent consciousness? rather than two working together. I think it all depends on the nature of the connection and how young you do it. I think those are the two key things. Yeah, could be. So, Steve, I mean, at that point together, you and I would truly make Voltron. <laughs> <laughs> it would be like a Vulcan mind to explain Voltron. All right, let me give you another version of this. Uh, this is something I've actually written about before. I think this is probably the best way to accomplish transitioning to machine consciousness. So let's say instead of instead of connecting your brain to another mature brain, you connect it to an artificially intelligent computer, piece of hardware. It may have AI capability and algorithms, but it's essentially a blank slate. Your brain massively connects to it, and it becomes just an extension of your brain. It becomes you, you additional resources for your brain to use. But over 10 or 20 years, whatever, some long period of time, your consciousness could be more represented in this artificially intelligent supercomputer than in your meat brain to the point that when your meat brain dies, you don't even notice it because your consciousness has mainly been migrated over to the supercomputer anyway. Well, but would mm-hmm. you, are you saying that speed is a factor, though? Well, whatever, just the, no. the capacity, the processing capacity and the memory capacity of this computer, maybe it exceeds that of your own brain, could exceed it by a hundredfold, that your meat brain is only 1% of your neural capacity. Wow. Yeah, I think that's a great, I think it's a great idea and it would overcome the biggest problem of this type of thing and that, that's continuity. Yeah. Like we've talked about. Yeah, I think that's the best bet for continuity, in my opinion, if, if that's the kind of thing that you worry, that you worry about. Uh-huh. Yeah, but I think it could work. And so the article that that Steve links to also talks about like a hive mind. Now we're talking about the Borg, oh, right? Collective. Yeah, yeah. So not just two people, but you know, connect an entire civilization in a hive mind, you know, through subspace or whatever. Ooh, but let's say let's say just wirelessly, you could have a city of of people with a million people, and their brains are all wirelessly and massively connected to each other. Could you Whoa. get lost in this hive mind, just become part of the collective? Nothing that says that that's impossible. I mean, some some, some version of that, you know, might emerge, you know, technologically out of our civilization. Yeah, but there could be a downside to it. If you look at some of the latest research with uh, with wasp colonies. They show that um, what they call distributed cognition, where because the hive of the wasps are so, uh, you know, functionally integrated that the individual wasps themselves, le- they have le- much less capable brains individually than other wasps that are more solitary or they're in a smaller, a smaller uh, hive. Uh, so because you their could brains actually, don't have to work could, so hard to survive. They, they don't. So, the, so you exactly they don't. Yeah, so you're basically you're sh- like sharing information in a sense. So the hive mind could be big, but the individual minds, which would be like neurons, would be would be small. And they this is just recent research, and it was it was the opposite of what the the social mind uh, theory tells you, where where humans 
humans mind human minds became much more complex because because of our social interactions. Well, bees are social as well, but it's a different type of sociality, and that's why they think that that they kind of uh, you know their their brains individually diminished, where ours actually got bigger. So interesting. Maybe stuff. that maybe that explains Facebook. It's like a hive mind where people <laughs> <laughs> their brains start to atrophy. And an echo chamber. <laughs> that well, explains Facebook, a lot. Uh, <laughs> All right. Interesting. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's one of those futuristic, totally blow your mind, you know, type of ideas. You know, it, there's, we, the thing is, we know now that this could all work. We can interface brains with brains, brains with machines, machines with brains. They can communicate with each other. Your brain plasticity nicely incorporates new connections, new technology, whatever. It, the plasticity is fine. It's all dynamic. You know what I mean? So we, we've overcome pretty much every theoretical limit to this and we know that it can work. It's really just a matter of getting the technology to, to actually function. And there's no theoretical reason why they can't work. It's just a, just a matter of time. So it's almost inevitable that this kind of stuff is going to happen in some version or another in the future. It's just a matter of when and what the specific manifestations are going to be. So. You know, I think if you, you think about like if you flash forward a hundred years, what are the really big differences going to be that will surprise us? I think this is one of those things. You know, brain machine brain interfaces is like we have no idea how this is going to transform civilization. Yeah, I agree, but I think the possibility of it happening could be completely obviated with other technology like AI, like brain individual brain augmentation. We might not yeah. even want to do it because of those other technologies. Yeah, we, we don't know. That's the thing. We, we know something is going to happen. We don't know the details. We, I don't think we could even really – there's no way we can anticipate the details. There's too many variables. Well, everyone, we're going to take a break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. We actually have a new course to talk about this week, Medical Myths, Lies, and Half-Truths, What We Think We Know May Be Hurting Us. Have you guys ever heard of this course? Oh, wait. That name looks familiar. Hey, hold on a second here. <laughs> it's about separating true medical knowledge from misinformation on all sorts of topics, including what, nutrition, medical procedures, diet, homeopathy, pseudoscience, and more? It sounds like something you would talk about, Steve. Yeah, you should have you should have done that one, Steve. You're perfect for that. Yeah, this is my own course. Uh, this is one of the two courses that I've done for the great courses. It was really a great experience. They have you know a fantastic editing process. They really get the best out of you. And this was a really fun one to do. I got to delve into myths uh, in all areas, not just the obvious ones like acupuncture and homeopathy, but things that we don't talk about very often, such as. Are there any actual home remedies for a hangover? Mm -hmm. How Ooh, is there? How can you stop the hiccups? You can. And also, I I do one lecture on medical myths from different cultures from around the world. So it's yeah, it was a lot Ooh, of wow. fun, a lot of fun to do. I think you'll you'll really enjoy it. We do have a special limited time offer for SGU listeners. You can order from eight of the great courses, best selling series, including Met medical myths, lies, and half truths at up to 80% off the original price. So this 80% savings doesn't last forever. As you know, we've said this many times on the show before. If you want to buy this particular course, you have to act now. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com forward slash skeptics. That's thegreatcourses.com forward slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for science or fiction. 
Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. You guys swept me last week. Bob, you end, ended your streak, ended your losing streak with a, with a win uh, last week. Don't remind me. All right, so we have just three regular news items this week. No theme. Ugh. You ready? Oh, I mean, I mean, yay! I mean, yay! <laughs> Did I Jedi mind trick you? Here we go. Item number one: An extensive study of gorilla behavior finds that the dominant male does not distinguish his own offspring from that of other males. Item number two: Engineers have developed a 3D printer that is capable of printing objects entirely out of carbon nanotubes. And item number three, a new discovery finds that the moon is shrouded in a permanent dust cloud. Evan, it is your turn to go first. Okay, the first one, gorilla behavior. It's extensive study finds that the dominant male does not distinguish his own offspring from that of other males. Hmm, okay. I, maybe that's part of being the alpha male, is basically everyone and everything else becomes sort of irrelevant in the uh, in the family. Uh, including their own, and therefore they wouldn't distinguish their own. Uh, they would just become another one of the flock, basically, because, hey, I'm too busy being the alpha male. So maybe that's right. The second one, the 3D printer capable of printing objects, wow, entirely out of nano, carbon nanotubes. I don't know, but I think, I, I think, so we got the 3D printer technology. Okay, we're there, capable of printing objects entirely out of, Carbon nanotubes. I don't know if we're there yet. If if that's the case, that's huge because then we're talking. You know, the we've kind of I think made a big old leap at that point, and I'm not sure that we've actually made that leap. Uh, I'm not sure about that one. The last one is um, new discovery finds the moon is shrouded in a permanent dust cloud. Why moon has gravity? Gravity that dust should be falling, albeit slower than Earth, back to the surface of the moon. The, the the cloud itself might be very close to the surface. I mean, we're not talking maybe something that's a kilometer above it. Perhaps it's just kind of this haze that hang hangs near the ground level that is constantly there for the regolith and other dust and that's uh, being uh, you know kicked up by whatever uh, solar forces or just having going around the the Earth and stuff. So and the rotation. So maybe that one's right. I'm having a problem with the 3D printer, one of the three of these. I think I don't think we're there yet. I think that's a few step uh, several steps away. We're still uh working on carbon nanotube technology and 3D printers are here, but the two have not met yet. So I'll say that one's fiction. Okay, Bob. Uh see gorilla behavior um they can't distinguish between their kids. I, that's not too surprising. I I thought that I thought there was one dominant male and that male was having pretty much most of the sex. So chances are those kids are going to be his anyway, but uh, yeah, I, I can I can kind of see that one. Uh, I'm going to go to three. The the dust cloud on the moon. Yeah, I, Evan, you're right. If it's dust cloud, they it would be falling. It would it would mean that it would have to be continually recreated. And what could do that? I mean, the only thing I could think of would be micrometeorites hitting the moon. You know, throwing stuff up into the atmosphere, and that's continually happening, of course. So that seems totally plausible. It's really cool. I hope it's I hope it's true. The the 3D printer one, yeah, I'm not buying this one either. I, I, we're not quite there. Uh, I mean, I didn't know, I didn't think that we could make a con- continuous uh, carbon nanotubes with to arbitrary length, which it seems like we'd be able to do if this 3D printer actually existed. That'd be a huge breakthrough, uh, and and we'd probably also be able to make 
a uh, space elevator with that technology too. And I, I, I would have heard about that. I, I don't think we're quite there yet either. So I agree with Evan. I agree <laughs> with Evan. So yeah, I'm going to say the nanotubes are fiction. Okay, Jay. Well, the the one about the gorilla, that's interesting that it, you're saying it can't distinguish its own offspring. That's a, that's an, that's interesting. Like, I don't know. I mean, it, I find that, that hard to believe that they couldn't distinguish their own offspring. Would they know? Just like we know, like they recognize them, unless they just don't get involved. I could, okay, I could see that. Maybe if they're the alpha male, they're too busy and they just don't really know. It That's doesn't say sad. can't distinguish. It says it does not distinguish. Maybe they they do distinguish them, but they don't, you know, evince that behavior. They don't care. Sure. Okay, that makes sense. That that is a little that softens the blow. All right. Uh, second one here about the three D printer printing nanotubes. I mean, I, you guys have picked that one. I mean, I could see that. I, I'm not, I'm not figuring out. Uh, how it could use nanotubes. Like, I thought the idea of nanotubes is that they have to, you know, make tubes, right? Like, you just shoot a bunch of short tubes out. I don't know. It just seems kind of weird to me. I don't know how they'd connect and, and make a structure and all that. So that, that one seems a little, little mysterious. And this final one, Discovery finds the thing about the moon shroud in a permanent dust cloud. I completely believe that one. So between the gorilla and the nanotubes, I'm going to GWB. Okay. So you're all in agreement this week. So I guess we'll start with number one. An extensive study of gorilla behavior finds that the dominant male does not distinguish his own offspring from that of other males. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. This is actually more Mm -hmm. interesting than you guys realize. Gorillas live in groups of a few males and a few females. There is an alpha male, and the alpha male is responsible for most of the uh, reproduction, but there, wow. uh, the other males sneak some in and they get some infant, mm-hmm. they get some children as well. What the study showed was that the alpha males spend as much time uh, and attention with infants from other males as their own. And that is atypical for primates. Usually a primate, mm-hmm. uh, the alpha male in a group like this, they would very much recognize and prefer their own chill offspring over unrelated offspring. But this is what the, the uh, researchers think. So there are other primate groups where you have a sole male with a group of females, no other males, and 100% of their children are their own. And so wow. they do not have to distinguish their own children from other children because they are all those. the children in the troop, 100% of the children are theirs. So what they think is that gorillas recently evolved their current arrangement. And that Ah. in the recent past, gorillas had harems of one male and and several females, uh, and they haven't had time to evolve the behavior of distinguishing their own children from other children. Isn't that cool? Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so let's go on to number two. Engineers have developed a 3D printer that is capable of printing objects entirely out of carbon nanotubes. You guys all think this is fiction. And this one is the fiction. Yes. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Right. Two in a row. Two in a row. So, Sweet. but we're closer maybe than you think. Now, it's possible. I tried. I actually spent a lot of time looking around to see if there is any product out there that prints entirely out of carbon nanotubes. And I could not find anything. If there is anything out there, it eluded my direct search, and so it's got to be pretty obscure. But there are lots of printers that print with carbon nanotubes, just not entirely. 
Oh, really? Yes. That's a surprise. Uh, and the carbon nanotubes don't have to be continuous. They could just be, you know, because they're tiny guys, right? So it's just a bunch of short segments of carbon nanotubes, right? What you can do is you can include the carbon nanotubes in like a plastic extrusion. And uh, so it, right? So it's part of the material that the 3D printers are using, but it's not a hundred percent carbon nanotubes. So it could be part of plastic. Uh, there's the, the company that came the closest was a company that's called Mark Forged, where they have, they still have two different, they have nylon and carbon nanotubes. So still two different materials, but the carbon nanotubes fill the nylon casing. So it's basically carbon fiber encased in nylon. Um, and it's supposed to be, you know, stronger than metal and very stiff. So it could be uh, an incredible building material. The news item that triggered this uh, for me was one that's cool in its own right. I almost made this sort of a, a science. science, but is they, they've figured out a way of making a 3D printer that could print in wood, essentially. Wow. So what does it look like? What's the product, the end result look like? Obviously, 3D printing, which is additive manufacturing, where instead of carving stuff away, you're adding stuff in a 3D configuration driven by computers. Plastics and metals are your basic standard 3D printers, you know, because you could, they can be liquid and you can, you know, lay them down layer by layer to create your three-dimensional object. Wood obviously doesn't melt. You can't make liquid wood, but what you can do is break the cellulose down into very small bits and then include it with like a resin. And so then you have this liquid that's mostly water actually, and you can print with that. So you have this liquid of small pieces of cellulose. Uh, but then it has to dry. So there's this second part to it. So you print what you want to print entirely out of cellulose, and then you dry it to let all the water evaporate. And the part of the trick is keeping its shape while it's drying. But you could also use that. Like you could, it will flatten out over time. And if you just incorporate that into the, the process, you could actually be an advantage if that's what you're going for. But uh, anyway, so it sounds like it's not quite ready or it may only have some limited applications, but it could, you know, this could be another option. They showed like a little cellulose chair, you know, that, that they 3D printed. It looks pretty cool. And they talked about including carbon nanofibers in with the cellulose, which is where I got that idea. Uh, ah. And the, the reason you would do that, now they say that these carbon nanofibers, the carbon nanotubes are small little segments. They're not contiguously hooked up together. Okay. And therefore, you don't really get the benefits of strength out of them. Oh, yeah. yeah. But you do Wait. get the benefit. Wait. Nope. Nope. Electrical conductivity. Wow. So if you want an electrically oh, conducting material, if you get a certain threshold of the, yeah. of the carbon you know, nanotubes in there, it becomes an, a, a conductive material. So you can have plastics or now cellulose that's conductive by just including the carbon nanofibers. That's primarily why they add it. But these other printers say that, that you know, that they add it, enough of it that you actually do get the, the strengthening benefit out of it as well. So guys, we're there. We were talking, I was, you had to bite my tongue when we were talking about this earlier in the show. <laughs> you know, you, you can uh, yeah. buy 3D printers that will incorporate carbon nanofibers, you know, into the construction, just not a hundred percent, but who cares? You know, it's embedded in either cellulose or plastic or with wow. encased in nylon. But yeah, you could, you could, <laughs> you could make, 
parts out of it. They're, they think eventually you could make, you could print circuits, you know, using this type of technology. All right. Which means? Which means a new discovery finds that the moon is shrouded in a permanent dust cloud is science. This is pretty cool. Cool. Where do you guys think? What's, uh, where do you think it comes from? It? Yeah, what's causing it? What do you think? I think it's a micrometeorites. Yeah. Solar wind. No, Bob's right. Micrometeorites. Oh. The moon is constantly being bombarded with little dust grains of micrometeorites all the time. And they, they kick up even more dust. And, uh, because there's no atmosphere and very little gravity, the, the dust that gets kicked up shrouds the moon and takes a long time to settle back down. So, the moon is constantly being pelted with these micrometeorites, and therefore there's a, there's a permanent dust cloud around oh, awesome. and shrouding the moon. This was uh, discovered by the NASA's Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer, LADI, uh, which launched in September Laddie. 2013. <laughs> uh, one of the detectors aboard this was called the Lunar Dust Experiment. Uh, they charted more than 140,000 impacts during a six-month mission. Oh. So 280,000 impacts a year. That's a lot. So that's, that's you know, that's a nice steady flow of impacts, enough to keep the, huh. you know, the dust cloud up at all times. They also said that it was asymmetrical because of the direction of the moon is moving. You know, it's more yeah, yeah. more on the leading edge and that it also varies over time and it, it the dust shroud increases significantly during meteor showers uh because obviously it's you know, earth and moon is yeah, passing through like the perseid meteor shower for example the leonids yeah. the leonid meteor shower yep you get the the dust cloud will increase so all one, lame showers yeah <laughs> added the ones you ne- the ones you never get to see bob cuz right. it's always yes. cloudy yeah. Always. Very one, cool. Yeah, like, one little detail a, a to uh, our knowledge about the moon. Cool. I broke out my telescope never... last night because um, there were three planets in the early evening sky. Uh, Venus and Jupiter and which one? Saturn. Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn. Oh, Saturn. were all visible. So I broke out my telescope. Uh, yeah. First time this season. Because it's been cold. But anyway, it's always tricky because you know you <laughs> want it to be... Late enough in the season that it's warm at night, but then it gets dark really late. And anyway, so it was that perfect time. Yeah. It was like just the sun was just setting. So uh, we got a great view of Jupiter, Saturn, and Venus. I showed my girls. They loved it. The Jupiter, the th- cool thing about Jupiter, I mean, at, at the resolution, you know, with my backyard telescope that you could see. You could wait, 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 Steve. You, you could see Cthulhu? Did, I did not see Cthulhu. All right, good. But the oh. cool thing about Jupiter is that you could see all four of its large moons. Large moons, yes, you wow. can. Nice, perfect little line. Nice in a perfect awesome. little line. Yeah, it's, it is awesome. When you look at it, like you get first of all, you could see the scale. You could see how far away the yep. moons are from Jupiter, and you know you're looking at a little system. It's amazing, and just thinking about Galileo seeing that oh, for the he, first time, oh. how unbelievable oh. that image must have been. To see that, another little system out there would, would must have just been unbelievable. Talk we about can't, a whole we can't imagine what went through his head. That yeah, yeah. he must have I lost his he, mind. I bet he got no sleep he's, that night. Come on, <laughs> I know what he said. I can't wait to tell the Pope. I can't <laughs> wait to tell the Pope. He's gonna love this. <laughs> wait till they know. <laughs> but it was Galileo taking observations over. You know, weeks and months where you could see the moons changing position. It was clear that they were orbiting around Jupiter. And that was the first time anyone could prove something orbiting around something other than the Earth. 
you know. Yeah, just don't just don't tell the church. Yeah, exactly. It was cool. <laughs> but awesome to be able to just go in my backyard and share that with my daughters, you know. Yeah, uh, I love that too. I I have a telescope and I we do the exact same. Yeah, thing. it's just a it's great, great way. Family gazing night. It's awesome. Definitely it's a great way to engage kids in science because I mean what is cooler than that, you know? Um, yeah, I remember I remember looking at the moon with my daughter and the moon is is of course I think it's the best thing to see because there's such detail and structure because yeah. it's the oh, moon the it's so close. Oh. That's cool. Yeah, looking at the moon is cool because you can see the craters and you can see a lot of the yes. detail, but there's something transcendent about looking at Jupiter and its moons. Or yeah. the other thing is Saturn and its rings. Yes. Those oh rings pop oh out at you and you're like, you're, "Oh my oh. god, there's Saturn. You're looking at Saturn." You know, oh you can God. see that you can see the point of light in the sky. You look through the telescope and you can see it with its rings. It's gorgeous. And you're looking directly at it. And it's just, be, there's you, something, it's an amazing experience. You, you become yeah. transported in yeah, a way. It, exactly. it really, really t- takes you off exactly. this planet in, in a, in a very real sense. I yep. Think. yep. Yep. All right. Good job this week, guys. Thank Bad you, sir. Job, Steve. Thanks. All right. That was fun. Evan, hit us with a quote. Okay. Here we go. I read science because, to me, that's extremely exciting. It's like a great detective story, and it's happening right in front of us. The immortal words of Mr. Alan Alda. Ah. Yeah, I agree. Love Alan Alda. Hawkeye! Famous actor, (laughs) director, uh, entertainer, uh, science aficionado, has a degree in science, among other things. Very well-educated and awesome, awesome spokesperson for science education all around. He goes and, and teaches um, scientists how to be better communicators Yeah, uh, at, at science. It's, it's so great what he's done, you know, in his uh, mostly post-acting part of his uh, part of his life. You know, he still acts and, and does other things, but he, he's really embraced uh, science education, and, and he's a great asset to, uh, to the cause. Oh, and speaking of zombies... Uh, in 2006, Alan Alda contributed his voice to a part in the audiobook of Max Brooks's World War Z. Yes. Cool. In the his book, ch- he, in the book, yep, he voiced Arthur Sinclair Jr., the director of the United States government's fictional Department of Strategic Resources. And his reading was wonderful. It was a very enjoyable chapter. I totally agree with that sentiment also. I mean, I remember when you go, there's nothing better than watching a great science documentary where they take you through some mystery that scientists solved. And it is like a, it's like the best detective story ever. It really is. Oh, absolutely. When it's done properly, that's how I like science documentaries to work. You know, it's yes. like, oh, there was this mystery and then they, this is what they, they tried to figure it out and whatever, you know, like all the blind alleys and all the thinking and then how each piece of evidence was another clue and they eventually put it all together. Oh, God, that's awesome. It is. And Gosh, Steve, I, and as you know, the story doesn't end because those discoveries then build upon other discoveries yes. later on. It's never ending. There's always another that's chapter. Right. It's the never ending story. Big story. <laughs> <laughs> you, you open one door, three more doors open. It's one. It, it really is great. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Evan. Well, thank you for joining me this week, everyone. You're welcome, Steve. Good to be joined to you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org. 
where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh-huh.